0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, as I said, we come now probably to the most difficult chapter in in all of Daniel. There's a few things that we need to, to point out as we begin. First, this is the last, longest, and most detailed, and therefore the most important prophecy in the book. It has been introduced in chapter 10, it embraces all 45 verses of chapter 11, and goes into the first four verses of chapter 12, and then it's followed by a postscript in chapter 12 verses 5 through 13. So that alone helps us to realize the importance of this text. Second, the Revelation has three parts. The first part deals with the history of the Near East from the time of Daniel up to the appearance of Antiochus Epiphanes, whose coming has already been prophesied in earlier chapters. The second part concerns the career of Antiochus himself, and then there is a third part, which is the most difficult. It concerns either Antiochus or the early history of the Roman Empire or the events that have not yet come, which I believe Scripture bears out. So let's take a few minutes and just look at the first two parts of this prophecy, and that is the history. The first section of chapter 11 extends from verse 1 through verse 19, and it concerns the history of the ancient world from the time of Daniel up to Antiochus Epiphanes, as I mentioned. This section is so detailed that many commentators write whole volumes on those 19 verses. And this is the chief reason why liberal scholars believe that Daniel was actually written in A.D. 165, because they can't fathom the reality that God would give a man so much detail. The details are so complete and so precise that they think it's impossible that it has to have been written after the facts, and therefore to lay out such detail. And of course, that's always a problem with the liberal mind. They're always looking for reasons why the scriptures can't be from God. And this is one of the main ones that we see. They hardly believe God could give this kind of detailed information to a prophet many hundreds of years before the events occurred. And that's exactly what the scripture is telling us happened. The prophecy begins by speaking of three more kings of Persia, and then a fourth who is the, to be far richer than all the others. Now, there's no difficulty understanding that what this means. The, the, the rich king, Xerxes, who reigned from 485 to 464 BC, the king who preceded him uh, after the death of Cyrus was Canabeus. Who reigned from 529 to 523? Uh, Guamada, who was an imposter. He only reigned for one year because he was uh, assassinated by Darius the Great, who then reigned for 522 to 485 BC. Now, if we were doing a very detailed study here, I would go into all the details of why these men are important. But for what we're trying to do this morning, and what we're trying to do, as you notice through the book of Daniel, is given overview of prophecy without getting bogged down in details. Um, We would need a whole class. I I could probably spend two, three months in this chapter alone. But it's important, I think, that as we go through prophecy here in 2018, how does it affect you and I? What does studying these ancient scriptures and the facts, how does it really affect us? So, these are key details that all of us can look up and see the significance of it. The significant thing about Xerxes, though, is that his reign is, is that he crossed the Hellsport. And the Hellsport, if you know, is today known as the Dardanelles, which is a narrow strait in the northwestern part of Turkey. But he crossed the Hellsport in an unsuccessful attempt to conquer Europe and was defeated by the Greeks. The Persians had tried to conquer Greece earlier under Darius the Great and had been defeated at Marathon. In in this second invasion, the great navy of the Persians was defeated by the Greeks at Salamis in 480 BC. And the main body of the Persian army was forced back to Asia. And these invasions were the catalyst in the campaign of Alexander the Great uh, against Persia, Um, A a whole uh, century later. In fact, that's what Daniel 11 verse 3 is talking about. It says, "...then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and and do as he wills." The next verses show how the empire of Alexander was to to be divided into four parts after his death. And we saw that earlier in our study when we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue, identified by four powers, if you recall, and by the, the metals that identified them. So as I said, we could go on for weeks detailing the accuracy of this section. But understand that the history has proved that the details of this section will fulfill were fulfilled as Daniel outlined them right here right down to the divorces and remarriages to accomplish the tasks. So this first section is verifiable not only by the Bible, but by historians. And again, as I said earlier, this is why many liberal scholars try to make the writing of the book after the events, because every detail is substantiated. And that's important for you and I as we go on. We now come to the second section which is another wicked king, and the exceedingly wicked and contemptible king Antiochus Epiphanes has already been mentioned in Daniel, appearing in the, in, the, in the first as another horn in the vision of the ram and the goats of Daniel 8. In that vision, he was identified as a ruler in the succession of Greek rulers going back to Alexander. Now, this wicked ruler appears again in verses 21 through 35. Here, many details about his career are prophesied. And these verses teach us that the early years of Antiochus would advance his career by deceit and intrigue, which is exactly what he did. And moreover, they speak of easy victories as the years went on. In fact, the rulers of Egypt had become so lax and so corrupt that he was able to march through with no resistance, no problem getting through and having small skirmishes. And there were occasions when the king of Egypt didn't even attempt to resist Antiochus as he marched through the land. Now, this did not last, however, because as Antiochus was opposed by the ships and the armies of the expanding Roman Empire, he began to be stopped in his tracks in one of these attempts. It's an interesting story in verses 29 through 33. It it reminds me of a scene out of a movie, actually. But what happened was Antiochus was on his way uh, to invade Egypt as usual, no doubt expecting an easy victory as he had enjoyed earlier. But he was intercepted by the Roman fleet under the command of Popilius Laenus. Popilius was a stern man who demanded that the Greek general return to Palestine. Well, Antiochus said that he would consult his advisors and decide what to do. Well, the Roman general was no dummy. He knew that he was trying to buy time to raise a bigger army to repel the Romans. So, as I said, like a scene out of a movie, he drew a big circle around Antiochus in the sand. And he said, you bring your advisors here and now. And if you step out of that circle without agreeing to go back to Palestine, we'll declare war. So can't you just picture that in some Hollywood movie, this thing taking place, you know, one of those old movies you see? Well, he finally gave in. He had no choice, and he headed back to Palestine. Antiochus was humiliated. He was humiliated before his soldiers. He was humiliated before his countrymen. And what do humiliated people often do? Well, they generally take it out on somebody else, don't they? And this is exactly what he did. He was so humiliated, he couldn't proceed against Egypt. He was embarrassed in front of his own men. So he turned again against the people of his own territory in his fury. He led 20,000 men against Jerusalem and abolished the temple worship, and worse... He had offerings of swine flesh upon the altar. He desecrated the great altar upon which daily offerings to the God of the Bible were made. And this is the abomination that causes desolation mentioned about in verse 31. Notice, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. As a result of these acts, Antiochus became the symbol of everything Jewish people hated and most despised, and widespread rebellion started led by Judas Maccabeus, who was, who was the leader that led a rebellion against them. And notice verse 32 and 33, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So this is the history of the first two sections of chapter 11. If these prophecies were made when the book claims they were made, And if they come true in history, as history shows them to have, then a number of important conclusions follow that you and I need to pay very close attention to. First, if the prophecies of this and other biblical books are made in the name of the biblical God, then this God and not another is the true God. The only way in which these detailed events can be prophesied and then be made to come true is if the true God, the God of the Bible, stands behind them and determines their outcome. Notice I said, determines their outcome. This proves that the God and no other God should be followed. Second... The fulfillment of these prophecies show that the Bible in which they're recorded is God's book. Many passages prove the importance of validating the book, but fulfilled prophecy alone, especially detailed prophecy like this chapter, validates the Bible as not mere human documents, but as God's unique revelation. So here we have this Daniel making these prophecies, okay? The first section, completely substantiated by history. The second section, completely substantiated by history. All done centuries before they happened. The third, and this is very important to you and I, the fulfillment of prophecy shows that the God who disclosed these events and then brought them to pass, is also able to keep His promises to His people. When we get in difficult circumstances, and our faith sometimes wavers, we wonder if God is really there. Or we wonder if God is just taking His hands off. And when we get caught up in the emotion in the midst of the difficulty, in the fear, and our minds get clouded, we stop seeing the overall picture of what God is doing. But be encouraged, because every word uttered in this book will come to pass. And this is the importance of prophecy. We haven't witnessed all the things that will come to pass, because many of them are for the future. But when you look at all the revealed prophecy up to this point and see detail after detail, event after event being taken place, as he said, you and I can look to the future with great confidence. But not only that, we can look at each of our own personal lives and know that the God who is involved in prophecy is just as much involved in your life and mine. And the details of our lives are ordered by the Lord. Jesus Himself, in trying to encourage His people, said in Matthew 28 verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now just let that resonate in your mind for a few minutes. Jesus said, I will be with you to the end of the age. If you know anything about your Bible and what it says, you know that when Jesus came into this world and gave his life and rose again the third day, that he went back to the glories of heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing now? He's making intercession for you and I. And and this always causes me to sit back and just ponder this. Because when I consider my life this pebble on a sea, Of billions of people through history. And I realized that God not only loved me so much to die for me and to draw me to Himself and to then sit at the right hand of His Father to intercede for me, He gave me His Spirit to guide me into all truth and take my prayers and take my cries and take my pain and place them before the Father as an intercessor. And not only that, the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit makes groanings which we can't even understand. In other words, we pray like helpless people not knowing how we should pray, but the Spirit presents them to the Father the way they need to be before Him. You know, I would suggest to you that if we could spend more time meditating and identifying on the reality of what Christ does for us every moment of every day, our problems would melt away. The problems are real, I understand that. But when you realize they've come to your life through his will to accomplish something for his glory, and you and I know that we exist for his glory, then the joy of knowing we're at the center of his will causes all fears to banish. He is the one leading us. So the importance of prophecy for you and I, if for no other reason, is to help us to realize that the God who guides those details is guiding the details of any, every one of our lives. And that, talk about liberating, talk about freeing, these are the kind of things that help us to mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint, as Isaiah tells us. We read the Psalms, we read the Proverbs, we read Isaiah and these great texts, and we read about confidence and power and everything. The reason they were able to have that kind of power is because they learned to let go and let God have His way the modern church today struggles to let go. We have preconditioned ideas of what church is. We have preconditioned ideas of what success is. And we measure those successes by worldly standards and not Holy Spirit standards. And when you and I recognize that God is working in the hearts of all of us to His purpose, it is so freeing and liberating because He is the one that's ordering it. Now... We still have the final section of this chapter and the verses in Daniel 12 to go with it. So we come to the time of the end. Now, as I said, these are difficult as every scholar or commentator acknowledges. And there are many views. Do they relate to history or events that have not yet occurred? Are they literal or are they symbolic? The answers to these questions will result quite in quite different approaches to studying it. And since there have been great minds on all sides, it's wise, wise to proceed carefully and with humility. You know, I think one of the things that scares people off from prophecy is they, they look at some man that they hold up very important as being a brilliant scholar, and he has one view. And then here's another one that is a completely different view. Well, who do you believe? If I'm not going to dig and study and come up with my own conclusions, then the easy answer is, I'll leave prophecy over here. I'll just move on to something more practical. And you know what? That's what Satan wants. Keep us dumb and happy and of no effect. So it's important for us to really have at least a working knowledge of what this is about. Now, the fact that there are divergent interpretations, is the best evidence for me for concluding that the events referred to are still future. I mean, think about it. If the section were referring to the past events like the first two sections are, there'd be no problem understanding it. The books would have been written, the facts would have been documented, and they would have taken place. If they were dealing with past, commentators would all agree. Therefore, instead of looking to history to see what happened and then matching those events to prophecy, we need to study the prophecy itself and see what it is saying about what is yet to come. And the second thing is, I would argue that the verses must be taken literally as what has gone before. The earlier part of the chapter spoke of kings and alliances and battles, and we have been able to give specific names and dates to all of them. This same should be true of the future section. We should know that right in the middle of this, God is not going to switch from, from facts to symbols. And so the confident thing for us is to know that as God is consistent in his writings, that as he proceeds through, we know that the events coming are exactly the way they're going to be. So looking at these verses as prophesying the future then, we can see them referring to the Antichrist, who is said elsewhere to appear at the end of all things, just before the return of Jesus Christ. There are a number of additional reasons for seeing the verses in this way. Verse 40 of the chapter, the angel speaks of at the time of the end. This refers to the end of the world immediately before the coming of Christ, the judgment. And since the events of verse 40 are picking up from these verses that have gone before, the phrase, at the time of the end, fixes a specific time in Scripture when these are to take place. And then the first verse of chapter 12 begins with, at that time. Which means, at the time just described. But what is interesting and very telling in chapter 12 is we're now introduced to some new things. First of all, we're introduced to a great persecution. Secondly, we're introduced to a general resurrection. Third, a final judgment. And fourth, the eternal blessedness of the saints. In fact, the Lord Himself took these very verses as applying to the last days in His discourse recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. He said in Matthew 24, verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never shall be. I guess we could paraphrase by saying you ain't seen nothing yet. And we know that the second half of the tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon, as it heats up in the Middle East and encompasses so much geography and so many people, that it will be a battle that's never even been thought about in all of human history. Now, at this point, though, we need to be very cautious. If what we have said so far is correct, then it would seem best to regard these verses as prophecy of the career of the Antichrist and of the final great battle of Armageddon that is described elsewhere in Scripture. I think particularly of Ezekiel 38, Revelation 16, Revelation 19. Taking these passages together, you find that they refer to a great world war immediately prior to the Lord's return. Daniel refers to a great battle, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. If you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel also mentions a group of southern nations and speaks of a great northern power coming together. These engage in a war which in Revelation is called Armageddon. So at the end of this period of great international turmoil, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, subdues His and our enemies, and ushers in a kingdom that shall never be overturned or destroyed. I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 that we saw earlier. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Talk about comfort. The next time you're embroiled in a crisis, the next time you're you're fearful and worried about the day, refer to Daniel 7.14. Your problem day will pass, but there is coming a time when God will take over and that will never pass. And your lives and my life will be eternally secure with the glory of Christ. And that's the great joy. And that's what prophecy gives us to hang our hat on. Yes, we have daily promises. We have daily things that we cling to in our lives. But the knowing that there's coming a day when it will all pass away. There's coming a day when all evil will be put out of our midst forever. There is coming a day when the Lord will return for us and take us to a place He's preparing That should give us the kind of encouragement that we need. So, what shall we do? In light of prophecy, in light of knowing where everything is headed, what do you and I do today? I kind of like what the psalmist asks in Psalm 11, verse 3. He said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Have you ever felt like your foundation was destroyed? Have you ever been trusting Christ and being very confident? Maybe you had a mountaintop experience and your heart is full of joy and isn't God great? Maybe you go to a concert like the high school kids did last night. You get all jacked up with wonderful praise music and God is good. And then you wake up the next morning and your foundation is destroyed. If we're weak in our faith... We get swept out with the tide, don't we? But when you know who's in control, you're not shaken. And the answer to the psalmist, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, is given to us right in the middle of our text in Daniel. Notice Daniel 11, verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. You know, this is one of those verses that I often love to go back to, to the King James Version and get that old English flavor. Notice how the King James puts it. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. Now, what is that? what's that saying? That's saying that those who either have no faith... Or have weak faith are easily corrupted by flatteries. We often look to the world for encouragement instead of God. But here's the key the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. I love that. You know what that says about the people of God? They don't just sit back and cry, they stay strong in the Lord and they go forward doing exploits. In other words, in the heat of the battle, they charge. That's why last week when we looked at Ephesians, when Paul described all the armor for the Christian to protect us, there is nothing in that armor that denotes sitting back in a a huddle. But they're all going forward with the sword of the Spirit, and the breastplate of truth, and all these things, because the child of God is never to sit back. In fact, faith is a verb. Faith shows action. True faith doesn't sit on its laurels. It moves forward. And you know, classically, we like the old phrase, you know, when going gets tough, the tough get going, you know, all these classic terms we like. But you know what? In reality, for the child of God, when the bottom drops out, you grab another brick. When the bridge is washed out, you find another way around. Because there's only one way for the child of God to go, and that's forward. And when you move forward with the power of the Holy Spirit, you know you're going in the strength of the Lord. Now, this is not a blind faith. This is not something that we just try to encourage each other by moving out in stupidity. The true child of God gets on their knees, gets into the Word of God, finds clear instruction, and moves forward. Two weeks ago, we saw when Daniel was so upset, sick for three weeks, that the way he solved that problem was to get into the Word of God, and God took passages from Jeremiah and applied them to his heart, and he then prayed those words of God back to God. You want to know how to have guaranteed answers to prayer? Pray His words. There's no other way to do it. And so Daniel set the stage for us, and Daniel tells us that the people who know their God shall be strong, and they will do exploits. So you know, There's always going to be wickedness in the world. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. There will always be famine. There will always be trouble, persecutions, distresses. But those who know God are to stand firm. The righteous lives, resists the devil, and do great exploits. And when you rely on the Word of God and you rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit, it's a combination that is totally unbeatable. So don't worry about trying to accomplish great things. Just try to be strong and do exploits on a daily basis. Be in the Word of God. Trust God. Feed on His Word. And allow the Spirit to lead your life. You know... Many of you have the old GPS in your cars now, and, and sometimes you get really hooked on it, don't you? Um, sometimes I find myself not even paying attention to road signs because she'll tell me when it's time to turn, you know? And we almost get numb by it, you know? But when you rely on the Holy Spirit and you're in His Word, He guides you every step of the way, He leads you every step of the way. And what a way to encourage those people who are around us. What a way to be able to stand and lift them up and say, God's got you. I'm praying for you. Let's get through this thing together. Let's see what God is going to do as he guides us through this area. And let's just keep doing exploits. Let's see what God will do through us. I trust that'll be your heart this morning. I trust that you will take the prophecy. I know it's tough to understand. I know it's tough to get it all straightened out. But knowing it will come true, allow the Spirit to guide you and use that as a great encouragement that tomorrow morning when you wake up as a child of God, your steps are ordered by the Lord. Trust Him. Seek Him. Let Him do what He will do. As we close in prayer this morning and, and the men come for communion, you'll notice this isn't the first Sunday of the month. Uh, we began to realize that many of our people who are on schedules with nurseries and children's church and that miss communion every month. So we're going to start moving it a different week each month so that they don't have to miss it all the time. So that's why it's on an odd, odd day this time. Um, we could take it to them, but it's very hard working with children to pray and allow the Spirit to work in your heart. So this allows them to, to everyone to be able to participate, not meet. So that's why we're off. But as the men come forward and prepare to give it out, let's just take a few minutes of personal reflection. Ask God what He wants to do in your life. Ask Him where He wants to take you on this journey. And if there's any sin that's in the way right now, Would you confess that before him? Would you ask him to cleanse your heart, to give you a monumental encouragement, and then when you take the communion, let it resonate in your heart exactly what he did for you. The broken body, the shed blood, the very creator of the universe. Colossians tells us that Jesus created all things, and by him all things consist. Yet he took on the form of a man because he loves you. And he wants you with him forever. Let's reflect on that for a few minutes, shall we? Father, move in our hearts now to be totally and completely honest. To be able to resonate before your spirit what you want to do in our lives. And we'll trust you for that now. One of the important reasons that we ask you to examine yourself before we take communion is the portion of verses that follow this that we seldom refer to. The beginning of verse 27, the scripture says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, it's important to understand what this is about and not to take it in a flippant, shallow manner. But the scripture goes on to say, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So the scripture calls us to a point of reality, to make sure our hearts are right with God. And that's why we do this, before we even take communion. Father, now as we begin this portion of our scripture, of this this meal, I pray that you would work in the hearts of all of us to fully understand and fully discern the massive importance of this time. The love of the God of the universe for us shown in the giving up of his life. In Christ's name we ask. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. (laughs) We'll be right back. <laughs> back. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as our custom, we'll all stand and join hands. We'll sing a verse of this hymn. thank you that the blinders have been taken off. We rejoice in that you loved us so much that you gave us a spirit to instruct us and lead us, and your word to guide us. And Father, we thank you that today we can rejoice in the reality that all things work to your glory. And so I pray as we leave this morning, we leave encouraged and excited about moving forward, being strong, and doing exploits for you. And will give you the praise and the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless. Is that all?